We're in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 6, 6 through 12 tonight. But here's the deal. I'm also going to read verse 5 because that's where we left off last time we were together. We, we left off in the middle of verse 5. So I'm going to actually read verse 5 through verse 12. And that's where we're going to be covering. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who, who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Well, you can see how strongly he feels about what's been going on in that church there in Galatia. But like I said, where we left off last time was in the middle of chapter uh, 5, verse 5. And I just want to kind of take you back to that. Look at what he says here. There's, there's something that actually for some people would be a little confusing. Uh, he says in verse 5, for the, through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, some might say, well, Jim, why are we waiting for righteousness? I thought we already had been given righteousness. Now, what I want to do is what I touched on last time, and I want to remind you of again tonight, and we're going to go into it in a little bit more detail. When we talk about salvation in the church, unfortunately, most Christians today, when you talk to them about their salvation, they think about the moment when they trusted Christ as their Savior. That's when I got saved. You know, are you saved? Yes, I got saved at eight years old. I got saved in 1972 at 14 at a summer camp or whatever it is. They, when you ask them about their salvation, they think of the moment in which they trusted Christ. The problem with that is if you only see your salvation as that moment you trusted Christ, something you got then and you've got the rest of your life, you misunderstand what the Bible talks about salvation and how the Bible describes it. And so it will cause you some problems and we'll talk about those problems in a second. So I want to remind you that when the Bible talks about salvation, the Bible talks about the whole process of you being saved. The moment you are justified is, is your salvation, yet your sanctification is your a part of your salvation and your glorification is a part of your salvation. Let me remind you of some scriptures that kind of illustrate this. Jesus in Luke chapter 19 verse 9 said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. That's his justification. The moment he trusted, the moment he was declared righteous. The word justification actually means you are declared or it's like an inspector. You remember the old underwear commercials, Inspector 12? Remember? remember? Come on. Some of you remember what I'm talking about. Inspector 12. Well, when you are stamped a Approved, that's when you are saved. The moment you are justified, you are declared righteous. So today salvation has come to this house, Jesus said. Yet Philippians 2 verse 12 and then into 13 says this, We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in us to will and to act according to His good pleasure. So wait a minute, why? I thought I already had salvation. Why have I got to work out my salvation? Because well, when the Bible talks about salvation, it sees the whole process. And by the way, this is the the thing I had the privilege of preaching at my grandmother's funeral was the fact that the Bible talks about all three aspects. And if you don't have all three, you don't have salvation. There's a lot of people who say, well, I got salvation. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I was baptized. If you don't have this middle part where God's conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ and he's working on you and you're becoming this, the new creation that you are is becoming seen. You don't, if you don't have this part, you don't have salvation. And there's the third part, as we just saw here, we're waiting the coming of righteousness. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following, 
Paul, Peter says, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who by faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. How come salvation's coming? I've already got it. Folks, when the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about the whole deal. The moment you trusted him, the process of being conformed into his image, and the day when you fully receive it. And if you don't have all three parts, you don't got salvation. And so don't see your salvation as just the moment you got saved. And here's why. Because if we see our salvation as just the moment we got saved, it'll give us some problems. One thing is this, is you misunderstand suffering. You see... God uses suffering to do what? We've already been through this in this class. What does God use suffering to do? To teach us obedience? Keep going, there's more. Refine us, mature us, develop perseverance and character and hope, draw us closer to reveal His glory. He, suffering is a major tool He uses to have us become more like Him. The Bible even says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. But the problem is, is if you just see your salvation as a one-time point, you'll misunderstand suffering and its purpose, and it may cause you to question God's love for you. How many Christians today say, well, well, if I'm a Christian, how come this is happening? If I'm saved, how come this is happening? They don't understand that suffering is a major part of God's purpose of conforming you into His image, and it doesn't mean you're not saved. It actually means you are. You're in the process of being worked on. Not only that, if you think that your salvation is just the moment you trusted Christ and it was all done at that point, you'll be confused by your struggle with sin. And maybe even question whether or not you're saved. You ever been there? Anybody here still struggle with sin? I do. But if you think that your salvation is just the moment you got saved, you'll be going, well, maybe I'm not saved because I'm still struggling with sin. I thought that would go away. Now you're in the process of being saved and one day you will be saved. You're, are you saved? Yes. Will you be saved? Yes. Are you being saved? Yes. So I want you, when you hear the word salvation, I want you to see the whole process. I want you to see the whole deal. Thirdly, if you misunderstand that your salvation is more than just the point in which you trusted Christ, you're not going to live your life with the understanding of how this life affects your eternity. And you're going to miss out on rewards in heaven. See, if you think, well, I'm saved. I got my, I, I got my insurance. I trusted Christ as my Savior. I'm all good. You don't understand. The Bible says that this process now between when he saves you and when he glorifies you, the sanctification process, not only is he refining you, he's also doing things in your life through you that you will be rewarded for. When you stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, it's not whether or not you get into heaven. That's already been determined. But when we're as Christians judged at the Bema seat, he's going to reward us for what's been done in the body, whether good or worthless. And folks, if you think oh, I'm good because I'm saved. Like I told you, those ladies in church I grew up with say, oh, it'd be good enough for me to go to heaven. That's enough for me. No, they didn't understand. The Bible says that this part of your life right now is when you're actually receiving or earning your reward that you'll be given credit for, if you will, and God will reward you for an eternity. So an improper understanding of salvation is very, very important. It'll help you out. Because some days you may not feel saved. Some days you might not look saved. Some days you might, might wonder, is he going to ever come get me? But if you understand the wholeness of your salvation, it would give you a little more peace. Yes, ma'am. Is it possible, possible to have justification and not have the other two? No, not possible at all. Because if it is not manifested by sanctification and an ultimate glorification, you don't have justification. It's not possible to have the first part and not the other two. But if people say they have it, that doesn't mean just because you say you do doesn't mean you do. 
Well, you better be looking for the other parts. All right. So that's what he's dealing with in, in verse five. What I want to deal with now is go on to verse six, though. In verse six, let me read it to you. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. We need to take some things out of this. Uh, let me paraphrase it for you. If you're in Christ, your faith will not be in your own efforts, nor will it be in your pride of how you are free. All right, let me say that again. He said in, in Christ Jesus, circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing. See, there are those who are proud of the fact that I followed God's rules and regulations. Therefore, I'm going to be saved. I'm going to be OK because I'm a good person. I've done these things. Faith, any, you put any faith in what you've done? No. Not only that, there's it goes to the other side and say, man, I'm just so comfortable in God. I'm free to be whatever I want to be. And what, I'm, my, my, I'm just I'm on the other side. Eh, you're still putting pride in your own how you live your life. It's got to be faith alone, which we'll see in second manifest itself in love. But what does that faith got to be in? Love. Your faith must be in what? Jesus. Jesus. It must be in Jesus alone. Not how you live your life, whether it's circumcision or how you live your life, whether it's I'm free. If your faith is in your freedom, you're in trouble. If your faith is in your rule keeping, you're in trouble. It's got to be in Jesus alone. And now on top of that, Saving faith is resting in Jesus alone, and it will be evidenced by love. In other words, if you're truly resting in Christ and not your own efforts, I'm going to put some things down for you. And I want you to listen closely to what I'm saying here, because I'm going to take some time on this. If, we, if we're really resting in Christ and not our own efforts, we'll be okay if we're overlooked. Now, I want to take some time to deal with that. I just... Uh, I read a book uh, by Tozer and, uh, called Fiery Faith. In one of the chapters, he said, faith is not afraid to fail. Now, when he talked about that, my thought was that he was going to talk about how if we are men and women of faith, we'll try things, we'll be bold, and we won't worry about failing. But that really wasn't the angle he was coming at it from. The angle he was coming at it from was this. If your faith is really in Jesus, if you really believe that he has not only saved you, he's got a specific plan for your life and he's got a call on your life and he is the one who's going to work it out and you really trust him. You don't have to be a success in this life. Amen. You don't have to be. Now, this goes against everything that America teaches. In this world today, we tell any kid you can be president if you want to be. Right. Isn't that what we say? You can be anything you want to be. Well, is that biblically true? No, David wanted to build God a temple. He had the ability and the power and the wealth. And the, guess what? God said, it's not the life I have for you, David. And actually, Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, Let not anyone think more highly of themselves than they ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith in which you've been given. If, if your gifting is preaching, preach. If it's giving, give. If it's teaching, teach. If it's administration, administrate. And, and what he's saying there is, is look, God not only saves us, God then gifts us according to what he wants to do for his glory through our lives. And if you aren't chosen for that position, if you aren't given the job you thought you really wanted, if your faith really is in Christ, you'll be okay if you're overlooked. But how many of us go, oh, I wanted that. And we get upset. We get offended. Isn't that interesting? In John chapter 7, Jesus 
the time of the Passover, sorry, the Feast of the Tabernacles, and his brothers come to him and they make fun of him and they say, anyone who wants to be a public figure like you, you need to go show yourself at the feast. And Jesus said, for you any time is right. For me, it's not time. And he stayed in the background. When they were trying to make him king, what did he do? No. Why? Because he knew that one day he would be glorified. But it wasn't for a while. And actually the road God had for him was to be a life of no place to sleep, no, no foxes of holes, birds of nests, but man, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay, lay his head. He was going to be ultimately crucified there in Jerusalem. And let me just tell you something. Someone shared this with me today as I sat after where I was done speaking and we sat for about an hour and talked. This one man put this to me and I had never thought about this. He said, think about what Jesus was going through at the cross. He said, if you want to talk about someone who was getting it from all sides. Jesus was at that moment receiving the full wrath of God on sin. So from the father it was pouring out his judgment on sin. The full wrath of all the sin of all mankind was on Jesus. What was going on from the human side? They were all pouring it on him as well. Pouring out their wrath on him. Oh, you saved others. Go ahead. Can't save yourself, huh? You guys doing all this. You can't even get off the cross. And at that moment, he was receiving the full wrath of God and the full wrath of mankind. You want to talk about being alone? could he do that? Well, he knew the father. He knew the father's heart. He's willing to be overlooked because one day God's going to make it right. Oh, yeah. One day, day every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. But he was willing until it was time to be overlooked. Folks, we live in a world in which they say you don't have to put up with that. You have rights. If you really, really have faith in God, See, circumcision or uncircumcision, don't put your faith in anything but God himself through Jesus Christ. And if you really have faith in God in that way, you'll be willing to be overlooked. Not only that, you won't sense a need to self-promote. That's one of the biggest problems in the field that I have as preacher, especially traveling preacher. You wouldn't believe how many guys that are in the field that I'm in of traveling around and speaking at churches who come up and say, Jim, how's your business going? First of all, I, I didn't know I was having a business, but second of all, fine. Well, you're not, you're not suffering a downturn right now? I'm like, no, busier than I've ever been. Well, what, what's your marketing strategy? I mean, these guys, these guys literally have, you know, they got glossies. You know, they got, they got brochures and they go call in churches. Hey, can I come speak to you? I'm going to be in your area. Vance Havner put it real well. He said, I don't need to know a few key men when I know the keeper of the keys. <laughs> but there's a tendency for us to think that I might need to put in a good word. If you really believe that God has your best interest and that God has a plan for your life, you will trust him and you won't need to self-promote. Now, I can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. I think Joseph, when he was in the dungeon... And he interpreted the dreams for those two men. And then he said to the one, hey, when you get your job back, remember me to the king. I think he might have signed himself up for two more years in the dungeon because he wasn't ready. He hadn't learned the lesson yet. Think about that. 
Remember, as you know, he, these guys had the dreams and, he, and they said, who's going to interpret them? And, and he said, don't interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. And then he interpreted them correctly. And he says, this guy, three days from now, you're going to be dead. This guy, three days from now, you'll be restored to your position with the king. Hey, and when you, when, when you go back to the king, <laughs> put in a good word for me. And it was two years later that the king has his dream. And the guy, you go check in the scripture, he goes, oh, no, I totally forgot. You telling me that if somebody interpreted your dream perfectly, just like that, you'd forget? I think God turned his brain off. I think Joseph, when he said, hey, put in a good word for me, I think God was saying, you're not there yet. You still think you have some part to play in this. And folks, without realizing it, this mentality in America has crept into the church. We feel like God will help us. I know of Christians who play the lottery and this is their answer. They say, I'm just giving God more ways to bless me. <laughs> Literally. I'm just giving God more ways to bless me. Folks, let me just tell you. If you truly have faith in God, you won't feel a need to self-promote. <laughs> By the way, if someone's got an extra chair, we're gonna, let's go snag one. Go, go grab one of the chairs. Can we grab one of the chairs from right out there? There's, oh, there's a stool. There you go. Super. Also, if, if your faith is really in Christ, you'll be willing and desirous to share, even sacrificially. I'm going to say that again. If your faith is really in Christ, you'll be willing and desirous to share, even sacrificially. Why? Well, it's not ours. Why, why are we afraid to share? Why are we afraid to share sacrificially? Why is that? Because we're afraid we might need it, right? It might not be there for us when we, if we really have a faith in Christ, that if we do what he's asked us to do, isn't he the one who said, I will promise to meet all of your needs? I'll supply all of your needs. I, I, I'll take care of you. According to his riches too, exactly. But you know what? Those of us who say we have faith, do we? Now, folks, I, I'm not here to beat you up at all. Please, you understand. You've, you've been with me long enough to know I love you, and I'm not here to beat you up. But one of the biggest things God's begun to really open my eyes to recently is this. Christians are really good for, for, for stating their de declarations of faith or their statements of faith. And we can quote the creeds. I believe God the Father, and I believe this, and I believe that. And we all can make the statements of what we believe. But do we really? Do we really? I believe God's going to take care of me. Do you really? Why do you feel like he needs your help? Do you really? Why are you worried? Do you see what I'm saying? If you really have faith in Christ, you won't be set back by suffering. When suffering comes, our first honest reaction, unfortunately, is God's mad. Maybe God's punishing me. What did I do wrong? We really understand that we have been made right with God. Go with me real quick to Romans chapter 5. Keep a bookmark here in Galatians 5. Go to Romans chapter 5. I want you to let this truth sink in here. Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. By the way, is that past tense? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Since we have been justified by faith. You remember, you're declared righteous. 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're at peace with God, folks. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait a minute, how can we rejoice in our sufferings? Because here's why, if you really understand that you're at peace with God because of Jesus and he's declared you righteous, your suffering doesn't mean God's mad. It can't be. He's already poured out his full wrath on, on Jesus because of your sin. He's not mad at you. He's still going to shape you and he's still going to mold you, but he's never, ever, ever going to be mad at you. He's never, ever, ever going to punish you. He's going to mold you and shape you, and sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it feels like punishment, but get this in your head. Rejoice when suffering comes. That's why Paul, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials. Why? How come our first reaction will be rejoicing? How come our first reaction should be joy? Because this suffering has nothing to do with whether or not I'm being good or bad. My Father is shaping me for His purposes, and He causes all things to work for my good. Exactly. Romans 8, 18. My, our present suffering is not worth being compared with the glory to be revealed. You have a question, Mark? I like this verse. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, mm -hmm. so that the life of Jesus also be manifest in our mortal flesh. I just, exactly. Yeah, that's in Romans chapter 8. That's in, in verses 31 through 39. He talks about how in the middle, in the middle of all this, we're, we're, we face death all day long. And then on top of that, the Bible talks about the fact that uh, it goes on in there and says we're like sheep considered as sheep to be slaughtered. First Peter chapter chapter one, verses three through five, right where I left off on verse five, verse six says in this you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a while you've had to suffer grief of all kinds of kinds. These trials have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. Yes. Folks, if you really understand where you are in Christ, if you really have full faith in him, suffering won't set you back. But now let me also keep going in Romans 5, though, and share with something that a lot of us really need to hear. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now for one, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right, now let's stop for a second. How many of you here served in the military? All right. Those of you that served in the military, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, thank you very much for doing that. Yeah, we're able to do what we're doing because of you. But listen, wasn't you, when you were trained in warfare, weren't you trained that in order to defeat your enemy, you had to render them powerless? I was in a submarine. You, you were in the what? Submarine. You were in a submarine? <laughs> so we don't even know what you were doing. So, all right. But you're to render them powerless, right? You cut off their supplies. You cut off their communications. You want to render them powerless so that you can defeat them. Listen to what Paul just said. When we were weak, when we were powerless, when we were God's enemy in the position to be defeated, what did he do? He died for you. Now, let me ask you a question. How good had you been in order for him to give you his grace? Not a thing. The Bible says that, that we're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. We're his enemies. We're deserving of wrath. We're objects of wrath. But when we were that wicked and his enemy and had no ability to fix it and we were crippled before him, he poured his grace toward us for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, listen, 
Isn't it sad how Satan has convinced you that now after salvation, after you have been justified and you're at peace with God and you've been reconciled through his son, now that you become his child, now he still convinced you and I that we have to be good before God will give us his grace? Isn't that kind of true what goes on in our brains? Folks, think about what a jerk Satan is. He's convincing sinners they're saints and saints they're sinners. He's out there convincing those who are apart from God, who've not been reconciled through God, through Jesus Christ. He's convincing them they're okay. You ask the person on the street today, if you died, would you go to heaven? Yeah, I think so. I'm a pretty good person. They're lost, but they think they're okay. But you know what? He's done the exact opposite to us in the church. We're at peace with God. We're his children. When suffering comes, we shouldn't say, why is God mad? Or where is God? Or what's happening? What have I got to do to get this fixed? We should rejoice because we already should know that we're okay with God. But Satan has now got the believers who are saved thinking they're not in good graces with God. So, folks, verse 6 says, circumcision, uncircumcision, all that means nothing. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. We're going to get to that in a second, but I'm going to give you another example. If you really have faith in God... Jimmy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's for sure. That's a second. Yep. If you're really someone, if you're really someone that has faith in God, you're going to be someone other people want to be around. Any idea why? Because you're going to be at peace. They're going to want what you have. You're going to be at peace. You're not going to be freaking out. When I was a lot younger in the ministry, I used to think that the best youth worker would be the cool young kid. You know? I used to think that'd be the best youth worker, you know, because, you know, the kids would think they're cool and the kids would think they're awesome. And then I started to realize over the years, a lot of times just having someone just a few years older isn't always the best person. Because you know what? When I was youth pastor, the kids might have thought I was cool and everything, but I was freaking out just as much as they're freaking out. <laughs> when they were up, I was up. When they were down, I was down. And I wasn't a whole lot of help. But then I've come to realize over the years, you know what young people really look for? They look for someone that's been there been down the road and they're okay when they freak out you don't freak out when they're super high they don't you don't get too high when they're super low you don't get too low and there are young people and even young couples folks don't don't let the world fool you into thinking you got to be their age to be able to minister to them come to realize over the years some of our best friends have been people that have been older than us and it's been valuable to say you know can I just sit and listen tell me your story and they smile and say oh I've been there too and God got me through it. He got you through it. Uh, he got me through it. If you actually really learn to trust God in this way, it's going to be manifested in love. And people are going to want to be around you. They're going to want to be around you. Now, we'll deal more with this love aspect as we get down the road just a little bit. Further, not tonight, but further on in our study of Galatians. So I'll just stop for there for now on how it will manifest itself in love. But right now, I just wanted you to get to the point of faith and understanding that. And then Paul in verse 7 says something interesting. He said, you were running a good race. He said, who cut in on you? Who hindered you? You know, you kind of picture the people out there running the marathon or whatever, and somebody all of a sudden running out from the pack and tripping you up or whatever. That's kind of the picture of it. And so the Bible says we start off in faith as babes in Christ, but Satan wants to derail us. Satan will use people in the church sometimes to derail us. Do you know that? This happened to Jesus. Go with me to Matthew 16. Of course, he wasn't derailed. 
But go to Matthew 16 and look at, look at verses 21 through 23. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Was Peter well-intentioned? Of course he was. Peter wasn't thinking, Oh, I'm going I'm to derail God's eternal plan. He didn't even know he was being used to the enemy. But his heart was in the right place, but he was still... He was about to try to derail Jesus from the path that God had for his life. And I don't want us to get into the point of pointing fingers or anything, because hopefully you realize our battle is not against flesh and blood. But folks, if you think back over your life, if you remember back when you first came to know Christ and you were excited and following in faith, I, I, I'm not be the least bit surprised if you aren't able to think back over your life and think of two or three or four different times when maybe even someone in the church, someone cut in on you. And said, I know the Bible says this, but you've got to. That's why Ephesians chapter 6, the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, starting in verse 10. We wrestle against what? Principalities. Principalities and powers and rules of the dark age. That's why God said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He knew where the words really were coming from. Have you ever thought back to Job's situation where we see up in heaven and, and Satan says to God, if you let me do this, he'll curse you to your face. That's what Satan said, right? What did Satan, uh, what did, I almost said it, Satan's wife, no. What did Job's wife, what did Job's wife say to Job? Curse God and die. Where did those words come from? And folks, if we're not careful, if we don't know the truth, if we don't know what the gospel really is, we don't understand salvation, we can be just like the Galatians, starting off in faith in Christ, and then people come in and start handing us all this legalistic rules, and their intentions might even be good. Because you know what? A lot of us were put under legalistic rules because they were trying to control our behavior. They wanted us to be good. But it didn't teach us to love God. It taught us that in order to be pleasing to God, we had to follow these rules. And many of us, even though we were saved, were derailed for a time. I know I was. Someone cut in on me. Quite a few people cut in on me. And I listened to them. And then I got thinking about that as I was doing my study for this, and it hit me. Why is legalism, I mean, we're hopefully starting to realize that you're not going to be closer to God by how good you've been and what rules you follow. Remember, when you were his enemy, when you were wretched, when you were under an object of wrath, he poured his grace toward you by dying for you. Don't think for a second you've got to do certain things, and then he'll give you his grace. He's already pouring his grace toward you at all times. And the Bible even says, how much more? Why then did we fall for it? Why? Why did this lie of legalism take root? Go ahead. Why, what do you mean by pride? Well, pride in the fact that, yes, you're saved by grace, but I can do it myself. Now, I, can, I, I can take over. Now, honestly, in this, you're right on to it, Jim. Here's the key, folks. Legalism appeals to your flesh. Your flesh wants some credit. Your flesh wants some credit. You know you can't save yourself. 
That, you finally had to, in order to be saved, you had to come and realize, I can't save myself. And you had to give God the full credit for that in order to be saved. But after salvation, now, I could at least be a good Christian. There are things I can do. And it appeals to our flesh. And that's why legalism fit, took, took hold. And how does Paul put it here in Galatians 5? Go back to Galatians 5. He says this. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, doesn't it? <laughs> it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. But it didn't come from God. You see, I'm glad you brought that out. Look at what he says next. I know that this persuasion doesn't come from what? The one who called you. In other words, this, this lie that you've believed that you had to do more now in order to be pleasing to God. Guess what? That didn't come from God. That didn't come from God. Now, here's the good news. There's some incredibly good news here in this next verse. And I've never seen it before, ever, 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 until just recently when I was preparing for this. Paul has been dealing this whole book with the fact that he went and preached the gospel to these churches in Galatia. They were coming from paganism. They came to faith in Christ. And then the Judaizers, after he left, came in and said, here's what Paul said, and that's kind of right, but you still got to be circumcised, and you still got to follow the laws of Moses, and you still got to do these things in order to be pleasing to God. And the people started to kind of fall prey to it. We saw last time we were together, there were some that were being uh, kind of led astray, and they were truly saved, but they're being a little bit led astray, and they're missing the advantages of being in Christ. They weren't not saved, they're just missing the advantages of, of understanding grace. There were others who would put their full faith in their righteousness and in their being justified by the law. And Paul said, you guys are severed from Christ, you're not even saved. And Paul even said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling as in the pains of childbirth again. Galatians 4, verse 19, until Christ is formed into you. Remember, we looked last time, he was saying, was that a false labor? And we could easily fall into this mindset of thinking, well, maybe, maybe actually, Everything Paul did was going to be for naught. Maybe, maybe it was always going to fall flat and be a waste of time. But I love what Paul says next here. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, stop for a second and look closely at what Paul says. He says, as concerned as I am. As upset as I am, because in verse 12 he says, I wish they would go ahead and just, they want to pride themselves in what they cut, cut it all off. He's that upset. In the midst of all that, Paul says, but you know what? If I'm willing to be still and I'm willing to let the truth and let the scripture speak for itself and let God be God and every man a liar, I'm going to be all right. You know why? Because I know that those of you who truly have salvation will end up where you belong. And those who are doing the damage, God will take care of them too. And I want to take you now through a little bit of a study to show you scripturally, to encourage you. If you are in Christ, Philippians 1.6 says this. Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will finish it. He'll bring it to completion. How come Paul could be sure? I mean, come on, Paul. There's lots of people that prayed a prayer, but they walked away. The Bible talks about those who are the thorny soil or the rocky soil conversions. Paul says, no, no, no. I'm talking to everyone in here that has truly been saved. If he began a good work in you, he will finish it. Because it isn't you holding on to God. It's God holding on to you. Oh, you might have someone cut in on you. You might have stumbled for a while. 
But we as preachers and we as Christians don't need to freak out and worry. Well, what if they look if his salvation's real? <laughs> your God's big enough. I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view because God's going to get you there. Not me. Doesn't he say something similar to that when he was in, in Philippians chapter four? He says, actually, chapter three, he says, if you think differently, God will make that clear. God will make that clear. So go with me to Matthew chapter six. And look at verse 13. This is a part of the Lord's Prayer. It's the model for prayer that Jesus is teaching his disciples. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, he says, Lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. That's very important. Think back to what Jesus said in John 17. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time. He's praying to the Father. He says, I've lost none of the ones you've given me. Except the one who? Who was born. What's that? Son of perdition. Which is talking about Judas. Did Judas ever have salvation? No. Never did. Bible's very clear. He never did. And Jesus said, all the ones you've given me, I've held on to. And then he goes on and he says, Father, protect them. I protected them while I was here. You protect them now while I'm gone. Folks, I don't know if you realize it or not, but God's the one that's holding on to you. It's not you holding on to God. If you've truly been born again, I have confidence in the Lord that you're going to be all right. Oh, you may suffer grief and different kinds of trials and some might because because you didn't understand the truth and you might have been tossed every now and then by wind every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of men of their deceitful scheming but if you are truly saved the spirit of god will finish what he started he will get you where you need to be and you know what as i look back over my life even though i've been a christian since 1973 and there might even have been periods in my life where i had horrible theology taught to be look where i am now how did i get there did i go to the right course no, the God who lived within me continued to call out to me. And as I continued to read his word, his spirit began to keep teaching me and he began to show me. And God got me where I needed to be. And I'm still going in that direction because I haven't got it all figured out yet. And folks, I want you to feel as comfortable as well. Don't be panicked by the enemy and say, well, what if I blow it? If you're truly his and you really want to know, he'll, 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 he'll show you. We're being continually transformed. Daily we're being renewed. Yep. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Look at verse 18. 1 John 5, verse 18. He says, we know, let me say that again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not go, keep on sinning. Doesn't say you don't sin. It says it does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, who was the one born of God, Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Let that one sink in for a minute. Look at what he's saying here. If you've been born of God, you're, it doesn't say you won't sin, but you won't enjoy it if you do. You all know what I'm talking about, don't you? Those of you that still sin, because everybody here say they don't. You're lying. But if you're in Christ, you don't enjoy it. Oh, you're still tempted. And sometimes you give in. 
But the moment you do, how do you feel? Not good. You hate it. You don't say, oh, I can't wait till I do that again. That doesn't mean you won't be tempted again. It doesn't mean you won't wrestle with it another time. It doesn't mean that it won't manifest, that your flesh won't manifest itself. That's why even Paul said, man, the things I want to do, I don't want to, I, do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who can save me from this body of death? But here's the thing. All these years, theologians have wrestled. Was Paul talking about his experience before he got saved or after he got saved? And the answer is actually very clear. Some people say, well, Paul was just talking about his wrestle with his flesh before he got saved. No, 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 no. It's, he's talking about after. And here's why. Listen to what he says in that passage. He says it twice. Therefore, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. He says it twice in that passage. It is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. That means a transformation had occurred for him to say it's no longer I who do it. Do you see it? Paul was talking about his experience after salvation. He knew that he was Christ. He said, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. person apart from Christ can't. He even says that himself in that same section. person apart from Christ can't delight in God's law, nor do they do so. But he goes, even though in my inner being I delight in God's law, I find this struggle, this war going on. My spirit wants to do it, but my flesh doesn't. And you know what? Sad thing is, a lot of times my flesh wins. Who will give me victory over this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ. Folks, if you're in Christ, you don't love sin. Oh, I didn't say you don't sin. But when you do, you don't like it. And you know what? If you're truly born of God, I can look you in the eye and tell you whatever it is you're struggling with, there'll come a day where you won't struggle with it because it, you'll have other issues, don't worry. But if you truly give these issues to God, God himself will bring you to a place where it loses it's pull. How do you know this? Because the Father who lives in you is working to get you to that point. Oh, and I can't make any rules to get you there faster. <clears throat> you know what? We can make all the rules in our house for our kids and what they can see and what they can't see and all that kind of stuff. But the moment they head off for college, can we control it then? And will our rules have done anything? But your life will make a difference as well. And teaching them how to be sensitive to the spirit of God within them will have a far greater impact when they walk out of our house than if we just give them a bunch of rules to follow. But over the years in the church, and they were well-intentioned, the church thought they could control people's behavior by the rules. Folks, you, I don't know what church you go to, a lot of you, I, some of you do, but I can guarantee you, all of you, you go and look at the church paperwork, that's all full of all these rules to govern where you can run and where you can't, where you can have a cup of soda and where you can't have a cup of soda, and all these different things to control people's behavior, because you think if we set the rules in place, everybody will behave. Rules don't bring about people's behavior. I'm not saying you shouldn't have any rules. Don't hear me wrong. But don't think for a second that your rules will make everybody be good. The real issue is the heart. The real issue is the heart. Go with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Look at verses 27 through 30. You know what's sad? Is in a room this size, it doesn't matter how many times you people have heard me say it. It doesn't matter how many hundreds of scriptures I show you. There are still people in a room this size who have been duped by the enemy and you still struggle with whether or not you can lose your salvation. Listen, listen, listen to Jesus again. 
My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give this, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Oh, he gets even further. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. You know what some people say to this? Yeah, but what if I choose to walk out? <laughs> if you've truly been born again, if the spirit of God's in you, you won't. You can't. Corinthians says this. It's God who makes us stand firm in Christ. Oh, and listen to what Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 8 when he talks about can anything separate us from God's love? And he lists neither height nor depth, nor angels nor demons. And then I love this because he knows that there's a, someone in the room who's going to come up with a loophole. And he says this, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Let me help you out with this. There's only one being that has not been created, and that's God himself. Everything else has been created. Oh, by the way, it means you've been created and even you can't separate yourself from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So don't let anybody say, I can walk out. If you walk out, you never had it. Listen to 1 John. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Trust me, if there's some way I could give you all a pill and you'd stop worrying about whether or not you could lose your salvation, I'd do it. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Do you see it? If they were of us, they would have stayed. But the fact that they left... Showed that they never were. That's the Judas principle, folks. Have you ever wondered why God chose Judas to be one of the 12 apostles? I mean, did Jesus not know? Was he duped? Of course he knew. He said, this guy's been, one, been a child of Satan from the beginning. Why did you pick him then? Because he wants us to learn something. There's going to be those who among us who claim to be of us that they aren't of us. And you're never going to be able to figure out who they are. You're going to find out at the end when it's all separated. The weed's going to grow up with the wheat. And folks, it isn't our job to figure out who's saved and who's not saved. But let me just tell you, don't you dare, don't you dare discount God's word by using experiences of people. Well, I know of a person and he was definitely saved. I know he was because, I mean, I saw God in their life and they just walked away from God. Well, so you're telling me your experience supersedes the word of God. God's word says that if they truly are saved, they'll stay. Now, there might be a time or two that you trip up. There might be even a time or two like Peter that you say, I don't even know him. But if you're truly his, when you return, strengthen the brothers. Peter, you're going to be all right. You're looking like Simon for a few days, but you're going to be all right, Peter. And folks, let me just tell you, those of you parents right now who've got kids who pray to prayer and you're not knowing where they are, let me just tell you how to pray. You just pray this prayer. Lord, only you know where they really are. And I'm not going to put any confidence in any prayer. I love how Adrian Rogers put it on Sunday. He said, you can't put any confidence in your baptism, whether it was a spoonful or a tankful. You know? You better not put any confidence in any prayer they prayed. Or a baptism. Or, I think they really meant it. 
Lord, you know whether or not they truly have received you as their Savior and whether or not you sealed the deal with your spirit. For John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24 goes on and says this. And when they saw the miraculous signs that Jesus did, many believed in his name. Verse next verse says, Jesus would not commit himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. Did you catch that? They believed. Yeah, but Jesus knew that it wasn't real faith and he didn't sign on the dotted line. He didn't give him his spirit. So if you don't, that's John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It's one of the clearest places. They believed, and if you stopped at that verse, you'd think everybody was saved. But the next is said, you know, he did not commit himself because he knew what was in their hearts. He didn't need man to tell him about man. And folks, let me just tell you, you parents who are wrestling with kids, don't sit there and say, well, I know they meant it. Listen, the only real evidence of someone truly been born again is a changed life and the Spirit of God being revealed in their life over time. Now, if they were saved, know this. God will finish what he started and they're in his hand and they can't walk out of it. And no one can snatch him out of the father's hand and no one can snap out and snatch him out of Jesus hand. And you say, Lord, if they're yours, thank you. If they're not. Help them realize where they really are. Because you want the biggest issue is whether or not they really know him. Because you know what? As long as this life may seem at times, this is nothing. This is a vapor. Eternity is forever. And that's the bigger issue. But don't put your confidence in, but I know they meant no. You're going to have to ultimately say, God, only you know what the heart really was. And my biggest issue is I'm not going to put any confidence in how much I really want them to be saved. And so I'm going to believe that they're OK. Lord, you know. And so, Father, do whatever you got to do to get them where they need to be. That's a hard prayer to pray. It couldn't have been easy for the prodigal son's father to give him the money and know that he was just about to go and have a lot of damage and a lot of scars in his life. But it was the best thing for him because the only way he would learn is if he came to the end of himself. And some of you need to pray, Lord, do what you need to do to get my child where they need to be. Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 9. This can't be any more clear. This sums up everything Paul said there in Galatians chapter 5, verse 10, just here in one verse. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Do you see it? Does sometimes it look like the wicked are winning and God doesn't know? Yeah, it does look that way sometimes. But um, believe what the Bible says. That's why Paul said, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. That you'll understand that what I'm telling you is truth. And that God will take care of those who have been leading you astray and their penalties coming. And I'm not going to have to worry about fixing it right now. Well, God will take care of it. Folks, I hope you take a deep breath tonight. If you're in Christ and you know you're in Christ, rest in that. And don't think you've got to be good for him to pour his grace towards you. He poured his grace towards you before you even knew him. Let him keep pouring his grace towards you and just receive it. Yes, Mark, go ahead. Uh, I like the rest of that verse, and especially those who, oh, did you read? Especially uh, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Is yep. meaning? He's yeah. talking about the unbeliever there. Oh. He's talking about the unbeliever. Oh. He's talking about the difference between those. He knows those are his and he knows how to get us through the trials we're going to go through. And he knows how it also to save those who are the ungodly for judgment. Just as much as he knows who's going to be saved and who is saved, he knows who's not going to be saved and who's ending up in hell. He knows all that, too. And he's keeping track of everything. Um, let's finish up real quick. 
Go back to Galatians chapter 5. Verse 11, Paul says, but if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Think real quick. Someone say, wait a minute. When, when was Paul accused of still preaching circumcision? Actually, a lot of us don't realize this. But actually, during this time, Paul was being accused of still preaching circumcision. If you remember back, and you're not going to turn there because we've already looked at it earlier. In Acts chapter 16, remember he takes Timothy to be a, a disciple and, and, to, and to follow and to go in ministry with him. But because his father was a Greek and his mother was a Jew, he had Timothy circumcised. And we looked at the fact that there are times that he does it for the sake of the gospel. And it wasn't because you're not saved unless you're circumcised, because there are other people. The, the interesting thing in that story in Acts 16 is he and Timothy, whom he just had circumcised, were going around passing out the letter from Acts 15 that said you don't got to be circumcised. That's what they were doing. And so there's a balance of knowing. In some instances, you know, I'm free to live however I, I want. Yet for the cause of the gospel, sometimes I'm going to say no to certain things or I'm going to to the Jews I became a Jew, to the Gentiles I became a Gentile, that I might, you know, became all things to all men. There are going to be times God's going to show you how He wants you to specifically live this out. But because of that, Paul was, some of the Judaizers were saying, look, you guys think Paul's preaching this new gospel? Paul's actually preaching circumcision. He, Paul himself said that you have to be circumcised. And then Paul says this, if I'm still preaching circumcision, like they say I am, why are they after me? In other words, guys, Look at their actions. Don't listen to their words. They're saying that I'm on their side. They're lying to you by saying Paul still preaches circumcision. Paul still does these things. Paul says you still need to do these things in order to be saved. But okay, if I really was on their side, why are they trying to kill me? And then he makes this statement. He said, if I was still preaching circumcision, then the offense of the cross would have been removed. I want this to sink in as we wrap up tonight. Think about what Paul was preaching when he preached the gospel of salvation through Jesus' death. To the proud Jew who was looking for the Messiah. Oh, no, their mindset, the Messiah was going to be this unbelievably righteous king. And he was going to rule and reign in righteousness and perfection and beauty and power. And this is the message of the gospel. Jews, your Messiah did come. And he was killed on a Roman cross. And through his death on the Roman cross, salvation is given to anyone who believes. Now you have to realize what a shameful thing that was to say to a proud Jew. Because it said in Deuteronomy, and also we saw it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that the whoever's hung on a tree is to be cursed. Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. That's what the law said. So you're telling me that our Messiah was cursed? Yeah, he became sin. That he who knew no sin became sin, so we might become the righteousness of God. But the message that Paul was preaching was the Messiah has come. And he was killed in the most shameful way that any human being could be done. And it wasn't even a Jewish cross, it was a Roman cross. And to the proud Jew, not my God. My God will not be like that. Now, folks, don't get all uppity on the Jews, because every one of us have said that one time or another in our lives. When someone walks into a school system and shoots 20-something kindergarten and first grade kids, every one of us had a split second probably where we said, why would God do that? Why would God allow that? In essence, the God I want to serve wouldn't do that. If I were God... Folks, we're all guilty of that attitude. 
We want to make him in our image instead of understanding that he's in his own image. But to the Jews, to say that the Messiah was killed in the most shameful way and that he became a curse. You, you wonder now why they were trying to kill him? And if you've ever questioned how strong Paul felt about this, how serious this was to Paul, look again at verse 12. I wish they'd go and cut the whole thing off. Pretty strong words, don't you think? Paul's pretty passionate about this. Folks, I don't know about you, but the further I go along in our study of Galatians, and we haven't even got into Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians yet as we go through all these books to look at what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Two main things are coming out at me. More than that, but two main ones right now. One is... A lot of the stuff I was taught in church when I was a kid wasn't true. And I'm coming to realize now what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's pretty exciting. As I told someone today, I like God now. <laughs> I, I'm serious. I knew that I was to fear God and, and that God was holy. And, and he, I'm just you know, grateful that he let me be in heaven. Even though I'm not good enough to sit up front, I'll be somewhere in the back. The more I've come to realize who God really is and what the gospel actually says, man, I'm starting to fall in love with God. I don't have to be told to love God anymore. It's happening. And the second thing is, it's starting to affect me in such a way that people are being affected around me and I don't have to try anymore. Man, for so many years, I would hear a sermon on love or patience and kindness and I'd go out and try to be kind to somebody and feel better because I was kind give a dollar to a guy that's on the side of the road. It's got to count for something because I was kind. But you know what's starting to happen? Without even thinking about it, kindness is starting to come out of me without me trying. Now, I'm not perfect. You want to ask my kids and my wife, you'll find out that it ain't happening 24 hours a day. But at the same time, you also can ask them and they'll tell you that it's starting to happen and catch all of us, including me, by surprise. God's being allowed to do his work in my life when I stop trying to do it for him. He doesn't need my help. If you've been saved by receiving God's grace, let him live his life through you. Let him sanctify you by receiving God's grace. Stop trying to get better as a Christian. I'm going to say it again. Stop trying to get better as a Christian. Believe that the one who began the good work and you will finish it, read what he says, believe it's true, and let it sink in. And you watch. I guarantee you, when you stop trying to get better, you'll get better. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you so much for the, just these six verses we've looked at tonight and, and the wealth of stuff that's there. Lord, thank you that, again, you just remind us of the fact that you're holding on to us. Thank you that in the middle of this section where Paul's so frustrated that he says, I wish they'd just emasculate themselves. You were able to speak to his heart and he's able to say, I have confidence in the Lord that those that are his are going to get this and those that aren't are going to be judged. Lord, thank you that it doesn't rest in us. Thank you that his message is not, you better go do it right or else. Lord, thank you that your word is actually saying, if we'll believe what you say, if we would just believe and receive, receive what you say, that we'll see the evidence of the change. Father, 
We're real good at statements of faith. May the real faith be manifest, not by our statements anymore, but by the fact that we really do believe it. We pray this in your name. Amen.